News. We also want to spend some time talking about the heat. BC's coroner still investigating hundreds of deaths believed to be linked to the last heat wave, the heat wave we saw at the end of June. We know temperatures are going to continue climbing this week, not as high as they were before, but still to dangerous levels. Let's bring in Gord Ditchburn, who is president of the BC Professional Firefighters Association. Gord, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Jill, for having me. How do firefighters prepare for this when you know you're going to see increased calls and there are going to be people who are vulnerable who are potentially in danger because of the temperature? Well, I mean, the obvious answer is we're going to be responding to the calls when we're when we're when we're dispatched to the calls, and that obviously that comes through whatever dispatch platform uh, departments are using, ecom or their own. Um, but we'll we'll also see departments staff up extra crews uh, in anticipation of this, and especially as the temperatures rise uh, in preparation for this. Um, we've been through it before. We've been through it in years past, um, and we take that with with the knowledge that we need to be prepared for the oncoming heat wave. As you said, it won't be as high, but for many people, it will still be high enough that they will they will suffer. And what role do, does fire play in this? Because I know when people call 911, and we're actually going to have ECOM coming on the program in the final hour of the show today, but when someone calls and we're, we're specifically talking about a heat-related call, a medical call, how does fire, what role does fire play as far as the response and who responds to those calls? Well, when you call, if you call ECOM as an example, they will interpret what call you need, whether it's police, fire, or ambulance, based on based on the information that the caller gives, uh, and, the, and then it's either downstream to the appropriate agency or um, through BC Ambulance will determine if they have a, a car or a unit available to respond and if in a timely fashion. And if they don't, uh, fire is dispatched. Uh, our most critical calls. Uh, fire is dispatched, uh, uh, cardiac, uh, uh, significant heat-related call, car, uh, fire is dispatched uh, at the same time. So fire would respond. Um, what we saw during the last heat wave were calls that were lower acuity quickly changed to higher acuity based on the heat and the, um, the unfortunate um, uh, inability of, of, of ambulances to get to the patients as quickly as possible and fire are then dispatched. Which makes sense, I think, because, and again, uh, a lot of people caught off guard and there was certainly criticism, not of first responders, but perhaps more of government uh, for the warning and for letting people know just how dangerous these situations could be. Uh, During that heat wave, we also saw some some heartbreaking stories with people that were feeling, I think, that they had no other choice. And I know in some cases they drove loved ones, they drove people who were in medical distress to the fire halls. what What are the issues with perhaps people doing that? Well, uh, I mean, obviously, it's your loved one. You're going to do whatever you can to assist them. Uh, in that, in those cases, they they may get to a fire hall or or uh, even an ambulance uh, station or quarters around the city or around the province and find that they're already out on another call and then they're waiting again. Um, the the best answer is to phone nine one one. Yes, you may have to wait a little, but phone nine one one. Get it recorded. And, and stay in touch with 911 to let them know if you actually are going to move that patient to another location um, because you'll get a response from, from uh, paramedics or fire or police. They'll go to the incident uh, location and find that there's nobody there. So it's, it's a communication piece that works both ways. Um, but again, as we know, the heat wave is coming. 
There's lots of evidence out there and lots of notice for people you know, to be prepared, um, take the right precautions. And for our friends and neighbours to check on each other, that's paramount um, in, in today's society. We have to check on each other. Yeah, exactly. And knowing that uh, in some places, some homes and apartments and that certainly aren't equipped to, to deal with these temperatures. Uh, just to, to go back and touch on that to, briefly, though, again, because you're right, people will do whatever they can if they think their loved one isn't getting the help they need and they can get that to them quicker. But I, I think there were even some stories. Uh, people were driving to fire halls and the fire crews were out. They were out answering those calls and they were at different locations. So uh, is there is there kind of... um. Do people have like a, uh, almost a false sense of if you drive to a fire hall, you're going to get help? Because you could arrive at a fire hall and find most, if not all, of the crews are out. Well, I, you know, and I don't, I don't want to know if it's a false hope, but there is that expectation that somebody will always answer your call in need, whether it's, a, you know, a call dispatcher, whether it's a fire hall, whether it's an ambulance quarters, a police car, whoever that may be. Uh, I know I worked one of the nights during the heat wave uh, last month. And we came back to our quarters uh, in Vancouver and there were people lined up outside the fire hall seeking help because they know it's a, a place of refuge, if you will, for people. They can go. It's a calm. It's a friendly place. They can come in and knock on the door and people will be there. There is that risk, though, in a high volume uh, uh, heat wave that fire crews may not be there. Have you ever seen that before? We're turning to the fire hall and seeing people lined up for help. Not to that degree. Uh, we've had people who walk up because they're in, they're driving by, or they they know them, and they, and they will come bang on the door. We off, we we will get walk ups, but it's very infrequent. And to the degree to which we saw, there were multiple people. It wasn't just one person out of the blue. There were multiple people seeking help. Wow! And were you able to help them? Uh, we were, uh, and in a couple cases, uh, we we were able to um, uh, advise them that they need to get to a, a much higher level of, of care, which was a hospital. Uh, they were non, if you will, life threatening, but they were they were they were trending in a way that could have been a problem. And they took the advice and they made it to a hospital. And uh, we don't know anything anything further, but yeah. Um, but again, it comes back to making sure that your neighbors, friends, and family are, are checked on, so that we don't see the de- deterioration of of life. And just before I let you go, because I think that is a really important part of the message, and we've been talking about that, making sure we've learned from that heat wave, checking on people, making sure uh, people are taking measures. What advice would you give to people as well about when to call for help? And because we did hear that also, that people were calling or maybe waiting, not realizing how dangerous a situation it was. So, so what can people do to make sure what they're doing when they need help is, is the best case scenario for everybody? involved i think obviously the the first tips are stay hydrated stay cool failing that make sure you're you're in contact with somebody uh, a family member a friend a co-worker letting them know that you're not you're not well and when you're not feeling that make the call to 911 ask and let them know that you know here's my symptoms here's what's happening so there's a record of it and also you're asking for a response and Again, depending on the call volumes, they should be able to tell you that you will see some response uh, within minutes to, unfortunately, to hours. But let people know so that you're not alone. It's the biggest thing. Don't be alone. Make sure people are aware that you may be feeling unwell, you're, you're deteriorating. And, and, and at any time, if you feel it's, it's, it's an emergency, call 911. We're there to help. All right. Gord Ditchburn, thanks so much for joining us for talking about this today. Appreciate your time. Anytime, Jill. Thank you.
Welcome back to the program. Well, there is often a lot of confusion about distracted driving, especially when we're talking about cell phones, devices. Does it matter if it's plugged in? Does it matter if it's charged? Does it matter if it's in a cup holder or sitting on the seat beside you? There has been another court ruling, this one coming from the Court of Appeal in British Columbia that deals with one such case. And joining me on the line to talk more about this is Sarah Lehman, lawyer with the Sarah Lehman Law Group. Thanks so much. Great to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for having me. So this is a case where we had an individual who was ticketed for using an electronic device, electronic device while driving. And in this case, he contested the ticket, from what I understand, arguing that he wasn't holding the phone in his hands. Instead, it was wedged between his leg and a car seat. So how did this play out? That's right. So the facts here were that this driver had his cell phone facing up, wedged between his leg and the seat. Now, the officer gave evidence at trial that the person was looking down at their phone while they were driving, which was accepted by the court. Um, He was convicted of distracted driving in traffic court, subsequently appealed to the Supreme Court, and then appealed again to the B.C. Court of Appeal, which is the highest court here in our province. And his conviction was upheld. And so what was the reason given then, or or was it just they didn't buy his argument that it didn't matter that the phone was, say, between his leg and the car seat if he was looking at it and was distracted? That's right. So it comes down to what was the legislative intent in making these distracted driving laws. And it's to try to curb driver distraction while behind the wheel. So here, given the fact that this person had the phone in proximity, touching their their body, and it appears that they were distracted by it, it falls under the definition of holding a distracted device. So the court gave us some clarity with respect to what holding an electronic device means. It's not just holding it with your hand, but also, you know, propping it up or uh, using it in some way um, that uh, could be distracting. Because people will hear this and think, well, you could be driving and say looking down because you just dropped an earring or you dropped a pen or something. A cop fell down and an officer could look over and see you looking down at it and say you were distracted driving. So would that be a different ticket then? Yeah. So if there's not an electronic device present, you know, that doesn't mean that you're not necessarily driving while distracted. There's other ways that you can uh, end up being distracted while driving, of course. Uh, That would be a different offense, though, and there are other portions of the Motor Vehicle Act that cover that type of behavior as well. One of the issues that came up in this case, and this has come up in many of the cases that we've talked about on the program, was that the the, um, appellant appealed to the B.C. Supreme Court, so the lower court from this ruling, uh, saying that the presence of an electronic device, the mere presence of it didn't uh, really constitute a distraction or also found that, uh, or he said the judge erred in saying that and said finding that that charging a cell phone without touching it constitutes use. He argued that that was an error, but it sounds like the higher court did not agree with that. Actually, they did make a distinction between the mere presence of an electronic device in a vehicle and its use or holding it. So that's an important, actually, to, to consider. Um, just the mere presence of an electronic device in the vehicle is not necessarily distracted driving. There has to be something more, it seems. So 
some type of touching uh, or, you know, holding the device in a position where it could be used to be interacting with it and then to become distracted, that does constitute it. But just having it in the car doesn't. So from this ruling, then, if uh, somebody is stopped at a red light or say stopped at a stop sign and they're just stopped there, you know, waiting for the light to change, waiting for the intersection to clear and an officer, say, comes up beside them on a motorcycle or comes up in a way that they can the officer can see into the vehicle. If that officer sees a phone on the passenger seat or sees a phone somewhere in in the vehicle, even if it's in the front seat of the vehicle, just seeing that phone then is not enough to give the person a ticket? I wouldn't think so, no. I think that there would still have to be some interaction physically with that mobile device, whether that means, you know, they were touching with their hand or with their leg or if it's under their leg or under their arm or wherever. I think there would have to be some physical interaction with the phone. Does it matter or does this ruling clarify at all? Does it matter if the phone is within reach or if the phone is in a position where you could be using it? So within reach is not the way the legislation is drafted. You know, there's other things that you can't have within reach while you're driving, for instance, cannabis. uh, But a phone isn't that yet. Um, So still, the test is whether or not the person is holding it in a manner where it can be used or is being used. And so this decision really just defined what holding it means. So it's beyond just simply having it in your hand. Uh, on the, during the appeal, the appellant as well made the case that it doesn't apply this particular infraction, that it doesn't apply to a cell phone wedged between a driver's leg and the seat when the screen is not illuminated. Does it matter if the screen is illuminated? I wouldn't think so, no. <laughs> it's interesting all of the arguments made because I think people, especially anybody that's had uh, been given one of these tickets, these are the things I think that run through your mind or things that you wondered are these factors when it comes to getting a distracted driving ticket? Sure. And I mean, I think that the best rule of thumb always is to just not put yourself in a position where you might have to make those arguments or start, you know, really uh, parsing Uh, the facts to try to avoid it. So what I would say that you should do if you're driving is keep that phone away from you, you know, whether or not that means you put it in your glove compartment or in a handbag or something like that, or if you have it properly mounted, then that's also a really good way to go just to make sure that you're not falling down this rabbit hole. Uh, I also found it very uh, interesting in this case, you don't often see uh, multiple dictionary definitions referenced. And this one references the Merriam-Webster dictionary, the Cambridge dictionary uh, to define, uh, to have or maintain in grasp to support in a particular position or keep from falling or moving uh, when talking about what holding actually means. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very helpful to draw all these definitions because we have to consider what the plain meaning of the language is. But we also have to give it some substance. And I think this is uh, making sense because, you know, holding a hand in your phone and speaking on it is not that dissimilar to, say, putting it between your shoulder and your ear and propping it up in that manner. So this captures that type of activity where a person might argue, you know, officer, it wasn't in my hand, it was on my shoulder, right? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, So does this ruling, because we're talking about the appeal court in BC, uh, it's in a unanimous uh, ruling from the the three judges. Does this ruling give us more clarification, do you think, on distracted driving when it comes to electronic devices going forward? 
I think so. Absolutely. It is going to be um, binding on all lower courts. And so, you know, if you have a distracted driving ticket that's working its way through the court system now, uh, and it sounds like these facts might be similar to yours, then this might be a case that you turn your mind to. Um, But yeah, it certainly does give us more clarity, which is always a good thing in the law. Does it show again then that the law itself is a bit murky? Because it seems like we've had a lot of these cases. We have. And I think one of the reasons that we have is because these tickets, unfortunately, are still just very popular. There's lots of people who are still getting them and lots of people who are still disputing them because of the very serious consequences that they do carry. So we're going to see a lot of litigation on this issue. Uh, But I do think that it's starting to become clearer and clearer. And so, uh, as I said, that's a good thing when it comes to a law because it sets clear expectations on drivers uh, and makes sure that uh, we understand what constitutes distracted driving and what doesn't. Do you think this ruling makes sense then? This is for what the case, what was put forward and the evidence that we saw in this case? I do think so, because we can see here that this person uh, was looking down at the phone. It was illuminated. You know, it was face up. So they were interacting with it, it appears, on the facts. Uh, So it's not a big leap to say that they were also distracted by that phone while driving. So I think it's important to send this deterrent message to the public about uh, distracted driving, that there's really no room for interpretation here. You know, uh, it is a dangerous activity and people uh, should be very conscious of it and to avoid it. All right. Thanks so much, Sarah, for coming on and for breaking down the ruling for us today. Appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. We have been talking a lot about the weather and how the temperature is going to continue rising in many parts of the province. That has led to a warning. So we have a heat warning that was issued yesterday by Environment Canada about those increasing temperatures. Now medical health officers with Fraser Health as well as Vancouver Coastal Health are reminding residents to take precautions to protect themselves and each other from the heat. And joining me to talk more about this is Michael Schwant, Vancouver Coastal Health Medical Health Officer. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jill. What would you start off by saying as far as, I know we've talked a bit about this and what was learned from the last heat wave, the good news being the temperatures aren't supposed to be as hot as they were before, but what advice would you give to people as we get into the this week and it does get hotter and hotter? Oh, as we get into the temperatures that we're expecting over the next few days, so potentially around 30 degrees in uh, within the city of Vancouver, this can still present a health risk to people. So while this falls short of the extreme heat alert that we had declared a few weeks ago, this can definitely still be a risk. So we can have a severe heat illness, particularly in people who are most vulnerable. So that could be older people, uh, people with existing uh, health conditions, especially conditions of the heart and lungs uh, and other risk factors. So it's a really important time both to take measures ourselves to try to avoid uh, getting overheated and having heat illness, but also to check in on people, those who might be isolated or those who might be at greater risk for getting sick in the heat. Uh, It's a really important time to keep an eye on our neighbours. We talk a lot about making sure people stay hydrated and, like you just said, check in on others. What are the signs to look for, though, even if maybe you still feel fine? You feel, yeah, you notice that it's really hot outside or hot inside. But what are the signs to look for that things maybe you are reacting to the temperature? 
Yeah, really important question there. Some of the early signs of heat illness that we see might be very similar to just what you've experienced on a, on a hot day. If you're outside, maybe you're having some exercise in the heat, and those can be uh, can be a part of an, a normal experience of the heat, but can also be part of heat illness. So some of those things like a more rapid heart rate, sweating profusely, red skin, uh, even feeling uh, even feeling uh, fatigued can all be part. Of, these are all things that we might have experienced when we're hot. Key point, though, is that if we can get to a cool space promptly, rehydrate and cool off, those symptoms should resolve fairly quickly. So if those symptoms persist, even when we've moved into a cool space, and especially if we have more severe symptoms, so things that we'd call neurological symptoms, so things like a headache, uh, confusion, if somebody's fainting or even starting to have uh, some loss of, uh, loss of consciousness or a lower level of consciousness, these are all big concerns. That could be a sign of heat stroke uh, and a medical emergency. So those are the, the differences. I'd say those very persistent symptoms even after cooling off, and especially uh, those more severe symptoms that I mentioned, are really a time to seek medical attention. That could be uh, in an emergency room, or it could be uh, be a a walk-in clinic as well. Uh, And you mentioned, too, that if you get yourself out of the heat into uh, air conditioning, whether it's a store or another center or something, you should see that go away quite quickly. Is there any danger from going from an extreme heat into a cold environment? Yeah, really, we think that as long as we're moving into something that would be similar to a room temperature environment, so going from uh, a temperature like the uh, low 30s outside to the low 20s or high teens inside, that shouldn't be too much of a, of a change. If there's a need to cool off uh, very quickly, so if somebody's had uh, severe heat illness, uh, medical supervision for cooling, using ice baths, using actual uh, medical interventions to cool the body uh, are something that, can be, that can, be, can be considered, but that would be something that would happen in the context of, a, of, a, of an emergency room or hospital. But in terms of just getting into a cooler space, people shouldn't feel uh, any concern with getting to that space, uh, and promptly is better, in fact. Uh, we know that, uh, unfortunately, hundreds of people passed away in the earlier heat wave likely linked to those high temperatures. What about people who are elderly or who are immunocompromised? Yeah, so these can be uh, uh, very important concerns because this this uh, risk that we see and these uh, tragic deaths that we see, we know uh, are disproportionately felt among older adults or people with conditions that put them uh, put them at risk. So we need to, as systems, so our health system, do work to check in on people. So through our home support programs and home health programs, making sure that people are being closely checked in. On transported to cooling centers, getting to medical attention if they need to. This is something that's very important for the city, uh, for the uh, for workers in the city, like uh, Vancouver Coastal Health, and we have a lot of support from the city of Vancouver and non-governmental organizations too, uh, pitching into that effort. But that's also something that we can all do as individuals, uh, looking after people that we might know. That could be family, friends, neighbors, just people that we might know have a harder time getting to cooler spaces or might be vulnerable. It's a very uh, can be a very effective. A uh, chance to help help someone out. Uh, if you already have been, say, exposed to the sun, say you have a sunburn or you've spent a significant amount of time in the sun, does that put you more at risk? Well, definitely there's this issue of cumulative heat stress. So if you, for example, are exposed to heat through either work or recreation outside in the heat and can cool off again, you're definitely going to be hotter. And starting from a, starting from a place that's a bit worse off if you go back into that heat. And that can also work the other way as well. When people are trying to cool off at night and they just can't get out of that space, it can really add up over time. So it's not just the instantaneous heat that we might be exposed to for a little bit of time, but over the course of days. So it's really important that 
to think both the amount of time we spend cooling off adds up, so it's a good thing to find, take breaks throughout the day, uh, whether we're outside for recreation or for, for work reasons. Uh, so those cool, that, that cooling time can add up, but also the exposure to the heat really can as well. So just thinking of that not over, the course of, uh, over the course of the heat wave, I think will serve people well. Uh, I saw people even during the height of the heat wave last time and in these temperatures out running and exercising outdoors. What are the concerns about doing that? Yeah, it's definitely something that we'd recommend that people either delay uh, that kind of activity, can even uh, put it aside for a few days, or if it's something that someone feels very strongly that they need to do, to really think of the time of day that they're looking at. So the earlier morning temperatures being in the teens or the evening temperatures as well are a good, uh, a good option, rather than having heavy exercise right in the middle of the, of, the, uh, of the noonday sun. I think that that's one piece of advice that we would give. And it's important that very strenuous activity, even for people who might be well conditioned, might be used to it, becomes a very different thing physiologically under extreme heat. So it's not unheard of for young and healthy people to have uh, to have severe impacts uh, from extreme heat in the uh, when they're when they're pursuing heavy exercise. So again, although the most vulnerable people might be older adults or those with other medical conditions, uh, extreme heat can affect everybody. And whether that's a risk of fatality for some or even just for, for severe illness for others, it's something we should all be thinking about. Uh, that's got to be something too that and that's part of the reason why we're talking about this today is that we're so not used to that even though we did have that heat wave we're not used to thinking about that here in this part of the country this part of the province that equating extreme heat to extreme and very dangerous situations and even fatal situations yeah, it's a good point that in I think some places that have been had a longer history of exposure to very high heat might have that kind of adaptation in place that certain activities are just cancelled in uh, under heat of a certain level or that they might have infrastructure in place so that they can uh, can cope with that. And part of the uh, you know adaptation to ongoing climate change that we'll be needing to contemplate is uh, having a, a clearer understanding of just what that risk might be. And it's true that it's something we've uh, been had limited exposure to here in. Uh, the lower mainland. Uh, we kind of touched on this with people who maybe are immunocompromised or elderly. Uh, if people are on medications for various reasons, should they be double checking with those medications or with their physicians to make sure or to see if they also uh, perhaps are more vulnerable or could have more of a, an adverse reaction to extreme heat? Yeah, absolutely. A physician or a pharmacist would be happy to review your medication. So certain medications such as diuretics for high blood pressure and certain other uh, groups of medications can put someone at a, at a higher risk for dehydration or for heat stress um, during a heat wave. So it's a good opportunity. Uh, that's a, the kind of a kind of check-in that could be done by telephone too. So that could be a, by a, a remote medical appointment if that's the way that somebody is receiving their care right now. Also something that you should be able to do with a pharmacist either in person at a drugstore or to arrange that by phone if you phone uh, phone and talk through your prescriptions with uh, with the pharmacist that fills your prescriptions. And it's a very good idea for people who are uh, on a number of medications or have uh, other medical conditions. Uh, and I wanted to touch quickly as well on sleeping because that was certainly something people were talking about during that extreme heat, just the difficulty in sleeping. How does that play into people's well-being as well? 
Yeah, and when you talk about adaptation to changing conditions here in Vancouver, this is something we really felt during the the last heat wave because we had those unrelenting high temperatures even overnight, really made it hard to cool off indoor spaces because we didn't have that opportunity to to open a window and get some cool air in overnight. And so we had just accumulating more and more heat over time, which really does impact on heat. So when you talk about that cumulative heat stress of just hour after hour of being in hot temperatures, this can be a major issue. So we really recommend that people think of that time. Even if you can get to sleep, you're still having that ongoing exposure to the heat. So it's very important to think of where in a, a living space, whether that's a house, apartment, or condo, is the coolest space that you can set up. Uh, what can you do in terms of opening windows when the temperature goes down, using fans to establish air circulation, really trying to get the coolest space that you can achieve. Uh, and if it's too hot, looking at the uh, looking at options that you might have, you know, offering up a place to a, a friend or family member who you know is struggling in the heat can be a very big help to somebody during these days. It's not too many days of the year that we're going to see this, and it is an extraordinary time. So it's uh, something that even for a couple of days could make a very big difference to someone. And again, one more good opportunity to check in on people that we know whose living space might not be uh, conducive to cooling off, just seeing how they're doing, offering them a space, whether that's for a couple of hours or overnight, and also offering to help them get to a cool space, uh, like the city of Vancouver has many that are set up in community centers and pools and so on, uh, and that could make a big difference for people who aren't able to cool their space overnight. All right, good advice as we brace for some high temperatures again. Michael Schwant, thank you so much for joining us and talking about this today. Well, thanks very much for talking to me about it. It's an important issue, and I really appreciate the attention you're paying to it. Let's talk a little bit about a shoreline cleanup. It has netted about 425, well, thousands of kilograms of debris, 425 tons of trash. Things like styrofoam, plastic bottles, pieces of rope, some abandoned boats, tires. They've all been removed from BC's shoreline as part of the cleanup. And joining me to talk a bit more about this is George Heyman, BC's Minister of Environment and Climate Change Strategy. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, Jill. Good afternoon. A lot of garbage on the coast. Oh, it's an incredible amount. And uh, whether it's the tourism operators or the Ocean Legacy Foundation, a a number of Indigenous nations that partnered with them and provided much of the labour, a lot of work's been done. You said 425 tons this year. When we combine it with a shortened season last year, when we initiated the program, that's over 550 metric tons. And that is a lot. I, I was out in Steveston. I was looking at just some of the material that had been collected in these giant hella lift bags that the Ocean Legacy Foundation is now going to reprocess into reusable uh uh, products, plastic pellets among them, and it is it is incredible the work that's been done, but it's just scratching the surface. Where is all the garbage coming from? Well, you know, we've all, we've all walked down uh, the streets of our city and we've seen garbage uh, discarded, and if any of us have joined neighborhood cleanups, it's, it's eye-opening, whether it's plastic bottles, uh, cigarette filters, uh, uh, cartons, it's all over the place. But we, uh, we get things from boaters, we, we get things that are... Uh, thrown away and uh, and wash out to sea but we're also receiving uh uh material from all around the world that uh, that comes in on the ocean currents and it it ends up uh, on the shores uh, some of the things that we used to think were a good idea like putting styrofoam in, inside of uh old car tires to to float uh wharves seemed like a good idea but when the styrofoam breaks loose it gets driven up beyond the high tide line and it just gets ground down into micro uh, particles that sea life ingest and ultimately humans ingest too. So there's 
there's a lot of stuff out there. I think as a society, we're knowing that we're too reliant on plastic. We want to move away uh, from single-use plastics. And I think the cleanup of the garbage that's out there is something that all of us who treasure our spectacular coastline uh, can get behind. And that's why we saw um, when the pandemic put a lot of uh, people out of work in, uh, in coastal tourism, uh, they came with an idea. We worked with them uh, for our um, Clean Close, Clean Waters initiative. Uh, we had a target of 40% employment for Indigenous people, and people went out, and they worked hard, and they cleaned up a lot of garbage. Uh, you mentioned a little bit about how it can now be recycled. So I, I guess it's kind of a silver lining that all of this hard work getting this garbage off the shoreline uh, can go into recycling it. So how much do you anticipate of the 425 tons? I think it's going to be much more than that uh, at the end of this. But how much of that will then actually be recycled? Well, my, my memory serves me correctly. I think the Ocean Legacy Foundation thinks it can uh, get uh, upwards of 70, perhaps 80 percent uh, into recycling. And that means uh, some of it is uh, polluted and, and can't be recycled. Some of it has just so much uh, accumulation because it's been in the ocean for so long of, of barnacles and other sea life that it, it is difficult. But uh, whatever uh, can be recycled doesn't, of course, end up in a landfill. And it also means that uh, that we're replacing the energy use for uh, for virgin plastics for some of the many things that aren't single use but are important uses of plastic. So the more that we can uh, turn this into a circular economy, the, the better off we're all going to be economically and from an environmental health perspective. If we're still seeing all of this stuff, though, on the shoreline and washing up on our shores, uh, what more can we do when people will think about the fact, well, wait a minute, uh, we've stopped using styrofoam for the most part when it comes to take out, at least in Vancouver and some other places. We've stopped using these single-serve plastics for, for a lot of what we do in our day-to-day lives. So if we've already done that, what more can people do that would actually make a difference and cut down on the amount of trash we're seeing? Well, we've seen some municipalities show, uh, show real leadership here. And despite the fact that uh, in the case of Victoria and others, they were challenged in court and told that it was uh, the provincial government's uh, responsibility to ban plastics and they didn't have the right. So as an interim measure, uh, I as minister approved a number of local bylaws. And I just recently uh, uh, passed uh, an amendment to the community charter that allows local municipalities to make that decision on behalf of their citizens themselves. But on the provincial level, because small communities in particular have said we need province-wide regulation, we're on the cusp of, uh, of uh, putting out our recommendations for final comment, and then we'll be phasing in some province-wide bans. But but not every jurisdiction in North America and not every jurisdiction around the world is, is in that place. Uh, I'll say, Jill, that a few years ago, I, I saw on a World Oceans Day, uh, the Surfriders Foundation was sponsoring a, a beachside cleanup in, uh, in False Creek. So I thought I'd go down for a couple of hours. And it was, it was an eye-opener for me to see how much trash and plastic trash and small bits uh, that are um, ultimately um, getting into the food chain of small animals was out there. So it, was, um, it inspired me to really think carefully about what I was doing, both as an individual and as a legislator. And I saw many other people out there learning the same thing. So I think we can talk about it. We can uh, urge our governments to take stronger measures, as well as urge industry to look for alternatives that uh, 
that do not uh, end up fouling the ocean. And we need to have uh, good recycling systems in place uh, so that uh, we're actually uh, reusing things for possible, recycling them we're not, and, uh, and not landfilling them. It's going to take a lot of work. And, of course, we have a lot more cleanup to do because it's not all coming from North America, although a significant amount certainly is. So let's clean up our own backyard and, and let's find ways to put people, particularly young people who have been impacted by the pandemic, who want to work and want to do something that makes them feel good about um, cleaning up our beautiful coast and improving our environment, give them uh, the support to get out and do that. Uh, you make a point, though, that it's not all coming from North America. So do we not need other countries uh, that are having an impact on the ocean to also buy into this? When you look at what we're doing in B.C. as far as our recycling rates, which are quite good compared to other jurisdictions and what we're already doing. Absolutely. And at the event uh, today out in Steveston, uh, at the opening of the Ocean Legacy uh, Foundation's uh, plastic recycling plant, uh, that question was asked. And uh, uh, Parliamentary Secretary Beach uh, uh, from the federal government uh, talked about the uh, the international work that Canada is doing, uh, signing uh, charters and treaties with other nations to work collaboratively to reduce uh, plastic pollution, just as we know we need to work collaboratively uh, to fight climate change and reduce carbon pollution. I occasionally go to uh, to meetings, whether they're virtual or in person, virtual much more recently, uh, as part of Canadian delegations uh, and talk to other nations about how we can support each other uh, and challenge each other to uh, to reduce uh, international pollution. So that work is going on. More of it needs to happen. I think BC has a really uh, thriving tech sector that uh, I know is up to the challenge and has been up to the challenge for um, developing alternatives, both to plastics for use as well as re- ways to repurpose and recycle plastics. Uh, there's a lot of ingenuity here. So all of these different threads, it will never be one uh, one silver bullet, but as public consciousness raises the the incentive for all of us around the world to do better uh, is challenged, and uh, and I uh, I choose to be confident that we'll meet that challenge, despite uh, despite um, quite quite frankly, is a considerable mess that we've left behind for decades now. All right, uh, George Heyman, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for making the time for us. Appreciate it. Good to talk to you, Jill. Thank you. Have a great afternoon.